First Sunday, 2022, we are back in the Gospel of Mark. We've spent, so this will be our sixth week in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we are finishing up chapter one. <laughs> so it's funny because this is the immediately gospel. Remember, this gospel moves really efficiently, really quickly. And uh, it, that word immediately is literally in there like over 40 times. And so though the Gospel of Mark moves really fast, uh, we're not getting in a rush as we go through it. And, and that's just kind of, that's, that's how we do things here. We just take our time and, and go through books of the Bible and try to look under every rock and consider the text and try to retain it, right? I, I like to retain what I read. And so I feel like it's, it's really healthy to slow down and think about what you're reading in order to retain that information. And we want to be transformed by it. Sometimes I think we get in a rush and it's to our detriment uh, when we do that. You ever, do you guys remember if you were in the 90s ever, uh, do you remember those 90s infomercials that helped you learn how to speed read or they sold like courses on speed reading? Like if you, so if you don't know what I'm talking about later today, just YouTube 90s speed reading infomercial. And there was all these different programs and like classes you could order or take that would promise you could read like five to ten times faster than what you currently do. And, and so and when this guy was talking about this speed reading program, like behind him was this classroom of like children, adults, uh, the elderly, and they're, they all got these books in front of them. And literally, if you remember, they're just like, mm, mm, and then they turn a page. Uh, and they're reading that fast, and there's like a million words on the page. And you're looking at this and you're like, wow. I must be the worst reader in the whole world. I can't go nearly that fast. And, and so I remember as a kid seeing those infomercials and then grabbing a book and like running my finger across the words and going as fast as I can and trying to read as much information as quickly as I possibly could. And then I'm like, I don't know a single thing I just read. I have no idea what I, what I just read. This is worthless. And then I would get discouraged, you know, and be like, I guess I'm just never going to be a quick reader. Um, but I, I think a similar thing, the reason I bring that up is because is I think a similar thing happens with Christians, especially around this time of year when we get our New Year's resolutions going or we start thinking about a fresh start and, and getting back into healthy routines and rhythms of life. And we think, well, okay, i got to make sure this year I read my Bible well. And so a lot of people talk about their Bible reading plans. And a lot of these reading plans are like get through the Bible in a year. And I, there's people in my family. I, my dad reads through the Bible in a year every single year since I, I can even remember. And, and, and a lot of people do this. And, and it, I've tried it. I don't know how many times I've tried to read the Bible in a year. I've yet to accomplish that in a single year. I don't know about you. Like I get through like January. I'm a rock star. And then February hits, I'm behind already, and by March I'm like, well, I guess I'm just not a good Bible reader, right? And I think a lot of Christians do that. I think a lot of Christians get discouraged because they can't get through the content in Scripture that fast. And if they try to go really fast, they, they may successfully read the words on the page, but then not retain it very well or, or be transformed by it or changed by it in any way. Uh, so, so I always think at this time of year it's worthwhile to encourage you as you think about how you can incorporate God's word into your life. Just be realistic. Find a realistic way 
to incorporate God's word into your life, however that may be. And that is way different for everybody. If you can read the Bible in a year, I am so envious of you. I, I wish I could be you. <laughs> but I, I am not that guy. And that's okay. I just take in information differently than what you do. But it, 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 whatever it may be, if, if it's a, a verse a week, if it's a paragraph a week, if it's a chapter a week, or whatever it may be, find what works for you and be really disciplined at it. Be really consistent with it. Whatever it is, however fast or however slow it is, be disciplined and consistent. Maybe the only time you can manage to fit in scripture study time is on a Sunday morning at church. Hey, start there. If, if Sunday morning is the only time you can fit scripture into your week right now, then let's make the most of it right now. Let's study a little uh, bit of Mark at a time, and we're going to take this book of the Bible throughout the mo most of this year. It may take us all the way around till Christmas. I I'm not sure. It depends how it shakes out. Uh, but I I just be really consistent. If this is what it is for you, then let's do this. And, and let's be disciplined and, and, and really um, prayerfully ask for God's conviction um, through his spirit as we, as we look into this. And so that's, that's my motivational talk for the entire year. I promise not to do that to you again. That's it. So I'm going to go ahead and start my sermon now. And we're going to jump in to Mark chapter 1. So if you remember where we were at when we left off there before Christmas... This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What a great place to start uh, in this year. He has begun preaching. He preached the gospel whenever he preached. And he was able to do sign miracles, uh, which is the way that they are referred to in Scripture. And they validated his message. And so uh, he, he began to cast out demons. We, we read a moment in which he was in the synagogue and he cast out a demon uh, from a man who was there that challenged him. And then afterward, they were at Peter's house in Capernaum, and Peter's mother-in-law had a fever, or maybe she was demon-possessed, remember, depending on the translation uh, that, that you agree with. And, but he healed her as well. And so then after that, he began to, to have a lot of people in that area of Galilee seek him out to be healed. And so it says that Jesus went around preaching and, and healing the sick with various diseases. And so we've come upon this moment here in which a man with leprosy has sought out Jesus and throws himself before him to be healed. And I think it's a really amazing moment to study. So let's go to chapter 1, verse 40. And I'm actually going to read the whole passage we're going to consider today all at once. So let's start at verse 40 and we'll read through 45. It says, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town because, or, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So his popularity was gaining traction really fast, obviously. A moment, this, this moment, a, a man with leprosy 
comes to Jesus wanting to be healed. So I don't want to take anything away from any miracle that has happened up to this point. But it tends to be the case, even though it doesn't make sense, that whenever we see, uh, the, more, the more dire the circumstances, the more impressive the miracle. That seems to be how we process things, right? But it doesn't make any sense because it, a miracle is, is God's intervention and, and doing something that, that is not natural. It's super, supernatural. It's, it's impossible. So no matter how little or how big we may uh, label a miracle, it's all a miracle. It's all miraculous. It's all, it all should be equally impressive. But there's just something about a man with leprosy being healed that seems like like if you're a first century reader reading through chapter one here, this is the moment in which this, uh, these miraculous moments get especially impressive. Like, whoa, he healed a man with, with leprosy? This is a, a monumental, uh, this, is, this is a big deal, right? I mean, having leprosy in that day and age would have been deemed worst case scenario. That would have been an awful, awful situation to be in. You and I, we probably have never come into contact or even seen anyone. You may have not even seen a picture of anyone who has leprosy, right? That's because today we have a cure for leprosy. And so, like, uh, now I'll, I'll warn you, I did read the CDC website to study leprosy this past week. So by today's standards, I am an expert. Uh, there are less than 200 cases in America right now of leprosy. There are less than 200,000 cases worldwide. And so this is a really rare thing. This is not something that you're going to see every day and really only see it in pockets of places even in uh, the world. And most of us would be immune to it. And so you just don't see a lot of leprosy today. It, it, what it is, it's, it's, an, it's a bacterial infection. I should have worn my glasses today to actually come across a little more uh, intelligent. But, yeah, it's a bacterial infection, and so it can be cured simply by antibiotics. Not a big deal. And so today, what we uh, know is leprosy is called Hansen's disease. And that is because in the 1800s, a doctor identified the exact bacteria and, and that causes leprosy. And he's like, I'm naming that after me. That's Hansen's disease now. And so, like I said, um, yeah, I'm an expert. Three cheers for modern medicine. Leprosy is not a big deal. Now, how it spreads... Uh, this, is, this, is, this was kind of fascinating when I, when I was looking for information on it. It, it. There's some mystery around how it spreads. So I was kind of shocked by it. I was taken aback by that. I figured we'd know exactly how it spreads. But they, they said, we, we think it probably, usually, spreads through, like, coughing and sneezing. They didn't sound really confident when, when they were talking about how it spreads. But it's not really that contagious, so now they didn't know about a lot about it back in the day, right? And so it was considered to be something highly contagious. So they took extreme precautions, right? Kind of like when COVID busted out. When we took like extreme precautions because we just didn't know much about it. We wanted to be extra careful. Well, uh, leprosy actually is not as contagious as what they thought it was. And so, so like with COVID, right? Someone sneezes on you with COVID, uh, you got COVID. I think even if you dream about COVID, you need to take a test to see if you actually have COVID. Um, it, it seems to, to spread around the world very rapidly, right? That's what we hear. It's become this, this yeah, monster. So, but leprosy doesn't work like that. You would have to be exposed for weeks, maybe even months, uh, before you would actually get leprosy from someone. And so 
uh, with you know, our hygiene habits of today and things like that. It's just not very common. Fast fact, armadillos carry leprosy. So uh, I told you, I did my homework. And so if you're in the Southwest, you see an armadillo, you want to touch it, I want to touch it, maybe just poke it with a stick instead because it has, it, they do carry the, that bacteria and you can get yourself some leprosy. So that was for free today. <laughs> but here's what it does. When we think of leprosy, when we think of leprosy in the Bible, and thing, you know, or maybe if you've seen pictures of leprosy, you, you, know, you see people's skin deteriorating and things like that. How it actually works is that it, it, it affects your nerves. And so you, you, you grow numb, especially with your, your toes, your fingers, your, your nose, your ears, your eyelids. And so you can't feel things. So if you were, um, you know, getting in more advanced stages uh, or you've had leprosy for a while, you, you nick your finger, you wouldn't feel it, you don't know you're cut, it gets infected, things go from bad to worse. This is how it progresses and, and cause, causes problems. But a lot, a lot of problems can manifest in a lot of ways. One doctor I saw uh, described it as a painless hell, uh, just how it advances through your body. So, yeah, in, in biblical times, though, it all went untreated. So today you get a simple antibiotic uh, and, and you're going to be cured of this. Back in the day, there is no antibiotic. So it was basically like dying in slow motion. You would get one problem, which turns into another problem. You, you can't fix any of these problems. And pretty soon it's, it's just a miserable, miserable, miserable existence. And so you, if you had leprosy in this day, oh, man. It was just a life of absolute desperation. It, it was just absolutely uh, miserable. You, you would feel like you had lost everything. And everyone in the community would contribute to your misery. Let me tell you why. I want to read to you uh, from the law. Uh, you think of the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible. This is back in Leviticus chapter 13. There was actually information in the law that informed you how you were supposed to interact with someone who had leprosy. Here's what it said. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So if you caught all of those rules, first of all, if you had leprosy, you had to wear torn clothes. So you felt miserable and you were made to even look miserable even by the way you dressed. So it was very obvious that you had leprosy. On top of that, you had to cover your upper lip. You had to wear a mask. Boy, that just got too real for a second, didn't it? After what we've been through. You also had to yell unclean. If you were going down the street and you saw someone even anywhere near you, you had to say, unclean, I'm unclean. You had to let them know. And then on top of that, you couldn't live with your friends and family anymore. You had to live alone, usually with other lepers. And so just a miserable, miserable existence. As a matter of fact, there were, there were additional rabbinical writings in that time that added rules to it. Like it was, it was illegal to, to have a leper in your home, obviously, but it was also illegal to even greet 
a leper on the street. If someone had leprosy, you were not to even talk to them in any way. So very extreme. And you think, man, that's so cruel. But is it? You, you think, just try to think, try to reason through this. Is that extreme? Again, you, you think about all of the precautions we've taken through this pandemic. All of the extreme precautions because of the unknowns that are, that are out there. And then you think back in biblical times, all of the unknowns when it came to Hansen's disease that they didn't know was a bacterial infection and didn't understand what was going on. They were taking all of these, all of these extremes very reasonably, I think, because they didn't have any way to treat it and they wanted to keep people safe. And so they were putting in all of these rules to try to keep it from spreading. So with all of that in mind, here Jesus is, beginning his ministry. Word is spreading fast. People are hearing that this man heals people. It makes a ton of sense that this leper would do the unthinkable. That he would break all the rules and approach Jesus on the street here. He had nothing to lose, did he? he right? He wanted healed and he approaches Jesus and asks to be healed. Or, or really, he doesn't even ask, does he? He just said, right, you, you can make me clean. He just acknowledges it says in Luke's account of this, remember sometimes when you're reading a, uh, a moment in a gospel, there are times in which that same moment is recorded in Luke, sometimes in Matt, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, and sometimes in all four. So this moment is also recorded in Luke. And when you read that account of it, it said that this man was full of leprosy, implying that it was in the advanced stages. This had gotten really, really bad and so he was coming to Jesus in desperation. He does the unthinkable and approaches Jesus. And Jesus does the unthinkable and touches this man. It says, he was moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him. So again, very reasonably so with what little was known. If you were anywhere near someone with leprosy, you would run in the other direction. You would stay as far away from that person as you possibly could. But Jesus stays put. He not only doesn't run, he touches the man. It says, and immediately, there's that word. I'm not sure how many we're up to at this point, but it's several. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. So again, if you were living in that day and age and you even touched someone with leprosy, they were unclean. Well, if you touched them, you were unclean. And you had to go through a, a, a series of ceremonies and examinations with the priests to be deemed clean again. And so Jesus touches this man, but his uncleanness doesn't make Jesus unclean. We see just the opposite. The cleanness of Jesus actually makes this man who is unclean clean again. So here's a helpful exercise for us to, to walk through together as we are here sitting in community, study, studying God's word together. We, talk, we, want to, we want to get in a good, healthy routine, right? When we think through scripture, we want to think about how we can apply this to the way we think. We want to think about how we can apply it to the way that we live. And that's, that's a healthy routine of reading scripture, not just taking in information for the sake of information. We want to take this information in for the sake of transformation, as you hear me say all the time. Well, one thing that's healthy to do when you think about leprosy, and nearly everybody who writes any commentary whatsoever will, will mention this because it's, a, it's been such a popular analogy, is to think about 
the, the effects of leprosy uh, upon a physical body and then compare that to how sin affects our spiritual lives. Because there's so many parallels in between those two. When you think about how leprosy works and affects us and changes our lives, it's just like how sin works and affects us and changes our lives. I mean, think about it with me for a second. Those aspects of leprosy that we just went through. Leprosy creeps in undetected. It's a slow start and gets progressively worse. Doesn't sin work like that in our lives? It, it enters into our life undetected, and we only realize it once we see all these other symptoms going on in our life. Well, just like how leprosy is contagious, sin is contagious. It spreads to those who live around us. It impacts the lives of those we, we, we spend time with. Well, just how leprosy makes makes you numb physically, I think sin does the exact same thing. It makes us numb to even more sin. That's how sin tends to play out in our lives. And so you can have what would normally be these small problems, problems in life, that we, but, we, but because of, of how sin works, we grow numb to a lot of these small problems, and they snowball into bigger and bigger problems because unchecked sin always breeds more sin. That's just how it plays out. That's how it works. Then you think about how leprosy uh, ostracized people in community. Doesn't sin do the same thing in our lives, right? When we live in community with one another, when sin enters that community, as it will inevitably in every community that exists, what it does is it ostracizes people. It isolates you. When you have sin in your life, you begin to feel disconnected to those around you. When other people living in community with you have sin that they're dealing with that goes unchecked, it begins to isolate them from you. It ostracizes one another. And so this is what sin does to all of us. And I think we can all relate to that, right? Because all of us in here deal with sin. Right? Haven't haven't you felt sin affect your life like that? I mean, you don't have to live very many years to know what it feels like to have sin creep into your life and get progressively worse over time. And then all of a sudden you look back and be like, oh man, how did it get to this point? You don't have to live very many years of your life to know what it feels like to sin against someone in your life and cause them to behave sinfully back to you. It doesn't take very long to to see how that works. You don't have to live very many years to know what it feels like to, to, to grow numb to sin. You know it's wrong, but you get used to it, you justify it, you make excuses for it, and pretty soon you move on to to bigger and more extreme sin. You know what it feels like to live in community with other people and to see sin impact their life or your life and cause a wedge to be driven in between you. That's how it works. That's how it works in every community, everywhere, believers or not. It's just how it works in our life. And so we can, we, we, we try though to fight back against this sin, and you know what that feels like too, right? Maybe you're dealing with a sin in your life, maybe it's that same sin over and over, and you, you try and you try to treat those symptoms of sin, and you may even get some, some really healthy results for uh, at least a short amount of time, but, but you just can't quite cure yourself of sin, right? We've seemed to crack the code when it comes to leprosy. But we have not found a cure within us for sin. And so books of the Bible, when you read through books of the Bible like the book of Mark, the book of Mark is not a self-help book. 
No book of the Bible is a self-help book. We don't read the Bible to learn how to cure ourselves. That's a big misconception. I think that's a, that's a faulty approach for a lot of people when they start to investigate Christianity or dip their toe in the waters of a church or something like that. Uh, it's, can this help me? How can I use this to help me? But when you really get into the content of Scripture, this is not a self-help book. We're not learning how to cure ourselves. We're learning that we can't cure ourselves. We are desperate for a cure, and a cure has been provided for us. Jesus, that's the cure for our sin. We go to Jesus because we know we need him in order to be cured. He is the answer to our sin. So just like the man who had leprosy went to Jesus, that's how we should go to Jesus because we are spiritual lepers. We can't cure ourselves. How does this happen? How do we go to Jesus? We hear people say that all the time. Well, you, you just need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You just need to go to him. What does that even mean? I think we, we get the cart ahead of the horse there sometimes, right? Well, I think it's healthy to think about how this man approached Jesus. First of all, we see that he went to him humbly by faith. Did you see the, notice the posture of the man? Kneeling, he said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. This man was on his knees. He wasn't making any demands. He was acknowledging by faith Jesus was the cure. Jesus was his only hope. Every one of us as believers has to get to this point. We have to get to this point as believers, right? Everyone in, every person in here is tr who is truly a believer, you know what it's like to try to treat symptom after symptom after symptom. But you get to that point in which you go to Jesus and say, I, I got nothing. I need cured. Something outside of me has to fix me, and I believe that's you. That's what, that's what Christians do. That's what it means to approach God humbly in faith. Coming to Jesus in humility means that you, you bring nothing to the table. And so that leper, you notice he didn't come up to Jesus and say, hey, if you heal me, I'll do this for you. If you heal me, I'll get better or I'll fix this in my life for you. He doesn't, he doesn't try to bargain or, or throw down any ultimatums or anything like that. He just comes to Jesus and acknowledging him as the cure. That's what it means to humbly come to him. We sing it in songs all the time. When you, you think of the, the hymns that we sing here at the journey, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. Coming to Jesus again, it's saying, I got nothing. I need you. And so Jesus, he has a specific posture ready for those who humbly come to him by faith. We notice the posture of the man. We see the posture of Jesus. He, he, he responds by healing the man. What we learn about God in Scripture is that he, he, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? We, you can read that verse and. In James, you can read it in Proverbs, you can read it in 1 Peter. It's all over Scripture. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's specifically reserved for the humble. So Jesus responds to this man with leprosy by being moved with pity, it says. And it says he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. He was moved with pity. That, that phrase, being moved with pity, it means an extreme empathy. You feel it in your gut. There was an extreme care, a compassion for this man. 
Now, if you have the NIV version in front of you, that's not what it says at all. I don't know uh, what translation you have in front of you right now, but the NIV says not that Jesus was moved with with pity. It says that Jesus was indignant. He was angry. He was mad. That's pretty different, right? Like sometimes you look at translations side by side and you think, Oh, well, this one says he was mad, and this one says he was compassionate. Well, which was it? Was he compassionate or mad? And the reason that that happens, again, I love to read all the research on this stuff. It's because when you go back to the earliest copies of Scripture that we use to make our modern translations, some of those, not as many, but some of those say that he was mad. It doesn't say that he was compassionate. It says that he was indignant. And so the NIV translators are convinced that that is the more appropriate translation. So why would he be mad, and what is he mad about if that is the correct translation? Well, proponents of this view would say, obviously he's not mad at the man, right, because he heals the man. He does ultimately show compassion to the man, but he's mad about the effects of sin on his creation. He's mad about how sin works in this world. He cares, and he's mad about it. Right? You can, and you can relate to that, right? When you see how sin impacts your life and you see how sin impacts the life of those you live around, especially the people that you care about, it just makes you mad. We live in a, in a fallen world and it's reasonable to be mad about that. I don't like that. Well, Jesus didn't like that either. It's just kind of like this. You think about the moment in which Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. It says before that moment he wept. And then we reasonably ask the question, well, why would he cry? Why would he weep knowing he was going to bring him back to life? Well, he's weeping because he's seeing the effects of sin on his creation. He's seeing how it it affected Lazarus' family and how they're they're torn in sorrow over the death of their loved one. He's he's seeing how Lazarus is dead. His friend is dead. He he doesn't like the consequences of sin. So he's, he's crying about it. He's weeping over them. And so in the same way here when he interacts with the man, it's possible that his response to this moment was anger because he's so frustrated that this is what sin has done to the world. And so in an act of compassion then in response to the humility, right? So either if he's, if he, if he's just compassionate or if he's just angry, the result is the same. He heals the man. He shows grace to the humble. And so when you and I respond in humility, when we go to Jesus humbly by faith, this is how he responds to us. And this is what I think is a healthy exercise for us to think through and to ask ourselves, do we do this? Have we done this? Jesus, he, he cares about you. He doesn't like what sin has done in your life. He knows what you're dealing with, right? He can sympathize with us. He understands. He's lived a life in a fallen world. He doesn't like what it's done to you. He cares deeply about it. And that's why scripture tells us in other places, right, cast your burdens upon him because he cares for you. So come to him humbly by faith and he will solve your biggest problem. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You're not perfect. Sin has infected you and it has messed up your life. Well, he cares and when we come to him in humility, he is our cure. He makes us right with him. So have you gone to him in humility? Or do you pridefully go to him? That's a good question to consider. You think about how you approach your faith in God. Do you humbly 
approach God in faith, or, or do you arrogantly approach God in faith? Here's two ways I think we do this arrogantly. Uh, maybe even uh, whether we're, we're aware of it or not. So this is why I'm bringing it to our attention, right? Two ways I think people approach God in arrogance is they think they're not that bad or they think they're too bad. Both of those are arrogant approaches to God. You think you're not that bad or you think you're too bad. You know, believing that you're not that bad is arrogance. But it's really easy to justify and convince yourself that you're not that bad, right? If you want to think you're not that bad, what do you do? Well, you just compare your life to somebody that's worse. You can always find somebody that's worse, right? And you can always find somebody that's better. But we're not going to talk about that right now. Well, you can always find somebody that's worse. You can always convince yourself, right? You just keep working, working your way through humanity and finding one ugly story after the next, one nasty person after the next. You can think about every horrible, awful person in your life and think, I'm better than them. I'm not that bad. I'm doing life way better than that person. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's not humility. You think, this is how Jesus would teach against uh, this mentality. He would teach in parables, right? And so he would teach, you remember the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? They both go to the temple in prayer. And what does that Pharisee say in his prayer? God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. Believing that you're good enough is prideful. Believing that you're not that bad is prideful. Jesus teaches against this. He said, not only are you prideful, you are self-deceived and you're not justified. <laughs> he reserves his grace for the humble. Now, we also sometimes want to fool ourselves into thinking we're too bad, so there's no way God can love me. We begin to overestimate our sin and underestimate God's ability to do the miraculous, to be our cure, to make us right with him. We doubt it. We think about how bad our sin is, how many awful things we've done, all of it that we've accumulated over the years, and we think, no way God can handle this. I'm just too bad for God to love. It's arrogance, it's pride, it's thinking that you can outdo God with your wickedness. Do you think you can outdo God's righteousness with your wickedness? You've underestimated him, and that's pride talking. It says that this man, when he approached Jesus and acknowledged him as his one and only hope, as his cure, as his salvation from this awful disease, it says that he was made clean. He was made clean. He didn't clean himself up. He was made clean. It was a miracle. And so you and I, when we want to consider our faith this year, this is such a great posture to remind ourselves to live in. Right? This is a great way to approach God with a, with a right knowledge of the gospel. We need to see our, see our relationship with God correctly. We need to see our spiritual healing the same way. Our salvation is through Christ and through Christ alone. He's the miracle we need. He's the cure. You haven't brought anything to the table when you think about your faith in God and your salvation in God. You bring nothing to the table. You come to the table, and it is completely catered. He is our feast. This is how we're taught to think of him. And so this is why we come to the table in communion each and every Sunday to remember we didn't bring anything to the table. We're coming here to remember that Jesus catered the meal. 
He makes us right with him. He gives us a place at the table, and he provides our nutrients at that table as we live in this sinful world. We take that bread, again, to remember, I'm not perfect. Jesus is perfect. He's the cure. He's the reason that when I stand before God, and every one of us is going to stand before God one day, when I stand before him, I'm not hoping I wasn't that bad. I'm hoping that Jesus was perfectly righteous and that by faith, his righteousness is imputed to me. And so when I stand before God one day, I drink that juice today to remind myself that I didn't outdo God with my sin. I can't. His atonement is perfect. It is enough. And so I take that juice to remember that my sins have been punished, not some of them, but all of them. Everything about Jesus is sufficient. He doesn't need our help to save us. He doesn't need us to chip in. He is enough alone. And that's why we give him all of the glory and all of the praise in our lives. So let's go to the, to the table today together in an act of communion. And let's think about the gospel in these ways. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for moments like this in scripture that cause us to examine our own lives. We thank you for the miraculous moment in which you healed this man of leprosy. And Lord, I, I pray that we would understand the gospel in a sense that we know you will make us clean. Lord, your touch makes us clean. Our hope and our faith in you, Lord, it is enough because you are enough. And so, Lord, I just pray that today as we take communion, we could contemplate this in a way that would, would give life. We know that we need your spirit to work in our hearts and minds as we read your word and worship together. But, Lord, I just pray that we would feel that life-giving truth of the gospel today as we sing. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.